Lord, we do uh, at times fail to know that you are near and you are an all ever-present God. And, um, and Lord, so as we just sang in that song, we do pray that you would help us to know that you are here. God, we bow before you. Uh, we recognize you as King of kings and Lord of lords, um, the one who's really, the only one who's really worthy to be worshiped, uh, to be honored. And uh, as we've gathered here this morning, our prayer is that that's, that's exactly what happens, is that your name would be honored. Lord, uh, we also come with a sense of our own need and, um, and a need for you to, to teach us, to show us um, what we don't know, um, maybe to encourage us in the things we do know. And whatever it is, Lord, that you want to do in our hearts, we open our hearts to you this morning um, as we open the word. Lord, show us yourself. Um, show us who we are and, uh, and show us our Savior. All in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Like Leon said, thank you for being here this morning. We're welcome. Uh, welcome you. Welcome you online if you're joining us. And happy Mother's Day to the mothers here. Um, I bless you and celebrate you. And um, I don't know if there's a more honorable vocation than to be a mom and to, uh, to raise the next generation. Thank you for what you're doing. If you're new here, my name is Floyd, and uh, I do the majority of the teaching and preaching here at Cornerstone. We've been working our way through the book of 2 Samuel, the story of David. We are smack dab in one of the darker moments or chapters, seasons, if you will, of David's life. This is the season where it really begins in chapter 11 with the story of David and Bathsheba and um, the sin that, that David is famously known for. And, and then there just seems to be this downward spiral. And we find ourselves here in chapter 16 with David literally running away from Jerusalem, the place of his throne, because of an insurrection led by his own son Absalom. And there's been some, you know, build up to this point. You could kind of see that, uh, that a, um, a disaster was probably coming if you're paying attention to Absalom and some of his actions. And I don't know what all was going through David's mind. If you go to Psalm chapter 3, and we're not going to turn there right now, but if you went to Psalm chapter 3, the heading of Psalm 3 is... is um, that David wrote this while he was fleeing from his son Absalom. And, and it helps you understand what was going through David's heart and mind as he's fleeing, as he's leaving Jerusalem. Last week, we picked it up, or uh, we, we finished up with chapter 18, and David is leaving, and you see the scene of David going out of Jerusalem with this company of people, and it says that they're just weeping. Their, their hearts are broken because of the treachery of Absalom. And Absalom had been sort of working behind the scenes, and it says that he turned the hearts of the men of Israel away from David. And David begins to pack his things and just get out of Jerusalem ahead of this insurrection that Absalom's bringing. And there's, 
advisors with David, there's friends with David, and David is leaving, and he just simply puts the whole situation in the hands of God, and he says, God, you're going to have to work this out. And, um, and I thought about it last Sunday. You know, most of us find ourselves in times and seasons in our life where we're just so uncertain about what the future looks like. Times when you may have lost your job or something happens financially or there's friends that you thought were friends that wind up betraying you. Um, there's any number of things that can come into our lives, negative things. And you can even go through seasons when it just feels like everything goes wrong. You know, where, where it's like there's a, a progression and it just feels like if it can break, it breaks. If someone can misunderstand you, they do misunderstand you. And it just, in those seasons, it just feels like you kind of have a dark cloud over your head. Most of you don't remember the old country singer Leroy Van Dyke, but he sang a song about a black cloud hanging over your head. And that's kind of the way it feels sometimes. It's like there's a black cloud hanging over your head. And there's this curse. Or it feels like there's a curse. And what you do in times like that will really dramatically affect the trajectory of your entire life. How you respond in times like that. Especially if the people who are supposed to be your friends end up turning against you. Or, as we're going to see in the text, people who appear to be friends end up not being your friends. And how do you respond? And this thing of cursing we're going to get into in the text here in a moment. Like literal curses. Now, we don't use that term a lot in American culture. If we do, it's usually a joke. Like we're usually joking about something. Like it's not uncommon. Um, I mean, for example, right now, I, the last couple times I've went fishing, I've had a hard time catching any fish. Like they just, they just don't bite. And it's like I've got a curse hanging over my head. I'm thinking about sacrificing one of my fishing poles to the fishing gods to see if it'll break the curse. Like we joke about that stuff, right? Um, I'm not serious about that. And that's like this reference to these, you know, animistic tribes that actually do really believe that that's, you know, all very real and stuff. But let me be very serious, though. There is a curse. And you read about it in Genesis chapter 3. And it comes with sin. There was immediately following the first sin, the original sin that we talk about, a curse. And all of the real curses that have existed find their origins in that one and find their roots in that one. I want to get into the text here. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 16, the scene is David is fleeing Jerusalem and he's it says he's weeping, his head is covered, and he's barefoot. And the people are with him, and I'm, I'm looking at verse 30 of chapter 15, and, and it says, and they went up weeping as they went. And I'm, I appreciate that the narrator gives us that specific of a picture so that we know sort of the scene and what it looks like. And then we break in in verse 16, and it says um, in verse 16, chap, or, or chapter 16, verse 1, 
When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys, saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Now, if you remember a few chapters back, there was a point after David, David is on the throne, he's the king now, and he decides to show a kindness to anyone who is left of Saul's house. David didn't have to do that. Saul had been nothing but an evil tyrant to David during the, the years leading up to this point. David had been running and hiding from Saul for most of those years. And instead of saying, finally, Saul is dead, and I'm going to eradicate anybody that's left of his family, David instead chooses to show a kindness to the family of Saul, and he finds uh, this man named Mephibosheth, whose feet were lame because he had been dropped as a baby while they were fleeing David's army, in fact. But he's also the son of David's close friend, Jonathan, who is now dead. And David chooses to honor Mephibosheth and establish him in his, um, in his royal courts, and he even invites him to eat at his table, just a place of honor. And he took this guy named Ziba, and he put him in charge of all the land that he gave Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. Well, now we find David leaving Jerusalem, and this caretaker, or this steward, if you will, Ziba, who's in charge of Mephibosheth's land, shows up with all of these provisions for David and his men, which looks like a really great act of kindness. And how many of you know when you're hurting, an act of kindness feels like a, a drink of cool water on a hot day? Like it's like it feels so good if somebody's kind in a moment when you're really in a dark place. And David's response is gratitude, in fact, he's so grateful. And he asks Ziba, he says, so where is Mephibosheth? Where is your master? This man that he had showed all this kindness to, this grandson of Saul. And Ziba says, well, Mephibosheth is actually this, and I'm paraphrasing, but Mephibosheth is actually celebrating what's happening. He's glad that you're losing your throne. He said today the kingdom is going to be established back to our house, to the house of Saul. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this story, but I'll just tell you, we're going to get about two chapters later, and we're going to find out that Ziba made that up. And Mephibosheth, in fact, did not say that. But because of Ziba's words to David, David responds, and he says, I'll just give you all the land that I had given Mephibosheth. And David's going to regret that later. We'll just leave that story where it's at. But I'll just say this. We are vulnerable when we're hurting. And we're vulnerable to the wrong kinds of kindness. Discernment is difficult when you're in pain. And if you're in a lot of emotional pain, and believe me, I've been there, 
Anybody who's kind feels like your friend, but they're not always. Sometimes people have ulterior motives. Sometimes people are kind to us because they see a moment of weakness and they can take advantage of it for personal gain. And that's Zeba. It doesn't look like it, not at this point. And the story writer just leaves the story hang there for a little bit, for a couple chapters, and we'll pick it up later. But the story goes on. And we introduce another character in verse 5. It says, When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul. So this is another one of Saul's relatives, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of, the king, of king David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. They're a really nice guy, Shimei. There, there they are, they're leaving. And remember the scene in chapter 15, you know, they're weeping, but they're heartbroken. And Shimei takes that moment to come out and it says he's cursing continually and he's picking up rocks and dirt claws and he's throwing them at him. And he's like, you're, you deserve everything you're getting. You took the throne away from Saul. And this is all your fault. And finally, this is happening. I'm glad to see you out of Jerusalem. And all this stuff that he's attacking David with, he's attacking him with his mouth. He's physically attacking him. Now, everybody knows what you do if somebody throws a rock at you. You pick it up and throw it back at him. Everybody knows what you do if somebody throws an insult at you. You pick it up and throw it back at them. Maybe a better one. And maybe you just go ahead and trade insults. Or better yet, you take them out. And we'll keep reading. Verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse the Lord, my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. I'm like, yes, Abishai, I like your thinking. This is ridiculous. This is uncalled for. And Abishai says, I can take care of this right now. I'll just take his head off. And I promise you, he will have a hard time throwing stones without a head. <laughs> anyway, I, I added that. That's not in the text. Okay, verse 10. Um, but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite, Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David 
And his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. And that's as far as we're going to go today. It's quite a scene, isn't it? There's little Shimei out there cursing. And you kind of see the scene where David and his men are walking, and it appears that there's probably some kind of like a little um, creek or a stream between them. And Shimei is over on the other side, and he's just, he's just walking alongside of them, sort of keeping pace with them. And he just keeps picking things up and throwing it over there. And he's yelling at him, and he's cursing him as he's going. And Abishai has a very human, understandable response. Like, I get Abishai's response. Like, we don't have to put up with this King David. Like, he's still the king. And we would be justified in crossing the creek and chopping the guy's head off. And this problem will go away really quickly. And Abishai was correct in saying that it, the problem would go away. But I'm fascinated and a little disturbed at David's response. Because the way David responds doesn't even seem human. Who is this man? How do you find yourself in a situation where you are being personally attacked while you're down? And by all appearances, everything you hold precious is being lost. And instead of people trying to at least understand and find the truth, they sort of join the mob. And you find yourself feeling very lonely, very misunderstood, and unsure of the future. Most of us have not found ourselves in quite as dark of a place as David did in that moment. But we found ourselves in places where we didn't think we would end up at, seasons of confusion, times when it feels like there's a curse hanging over our head, and then somebody decides to go ahead and curse us anyway. Now, they don't come up and they don't say, can I curse you? But the words that come out of their mouth are, in fact, cursings. Malice. Things like, you deserve everything that's happening to you. Things like, I, I knew this was going to go like this for you. Things like, well, what did you expect? Or maybe even worse, I hope you suffer for what you did. I hope you suffer. I wish the worst for you. Man, if anybody's ever wished verbally, wish the worst for you, you want to fight them. I do. I've had that happen multiple times where people have spoken just a lot of negative, hurtful stuff. And, um, and I keep thinking about David out there saying, 
No, I'm not going to throw the clods back. I'm not going to send it back to him. I'm not going to hurl the insults back. David's response can only make sense if you look at David's faith. If you look at what David says about his God, it begins to make sense. Because I don't know how you find within your own human strength the ability to respond to that kind of a situation with that kind of grace. I don't have it. And you can only, you can only respond that way if there's another truth that's undergirding or is foundational to your response. And David has that truth. And we'll find it in three statements that, that David makes about God. Statement number one. David says in verse 11, when Abishai is telling him, let's go take his head off, David is saying, no, the Lord has told him to. And what David is saying without using these particular words, he's saying, my God is sovereign. My God's in control here. That's what he's really saying. He's saying, this situation that I'm in right now is happening because God has allowed it and even maybe ordained it. Now, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes because at no point is David saying, and God's okay with Shimei's sin. And we should not assume that if we're in a difficult situation because of somebody else's sin and sinful choices, that God is okay with their choices. He never says that. But the reality is that, there, that we do find ourselves at times suffering things that are not our fault and that God in his sovereignty literally has allowed it to happen for his purposes. And because he's God, he doesn't have to show us what all his purposes are in that moment. And you may find yourself in a situation saying, I don't see how any good could come out of this. All I can see is that person's fault. They're cursing. I can't get over what they did and what they said and how they treated me. And unable to say, what if? What if there's a sovereign God who could have actually kept this from happening? And I could tell you stories this morning of times when I wished that God would have turned somebody into a grease spot on the floor because of what they were doing and saying. And it would have felt like justice in that moment. And I would have felt very vindicated. I mean, like, God, you see what's going on. You know what they're saying. You know how they're treating us. You know how they're treating me. Get them, God. And that's not David's response because he believed in a God who was sovereign and also good. He believed that this God that he served was actually in control. And you may be sitting here saying, so are you saying that God does evil things? No, I'm not saying that at all. The Bible doesn't say that God does evil things. The Bible does say that God is in control and that he's sovereign. 
And there are questions that I don't have answers to. But there's times when, like Job, we need to sit there and say, like, what did Job say? He says, shall I receive good of the hand of the Lord and not evil? And God didn't even argue with Job over that. Now, there is no evil in the nature of God. We don't serve an animistic God. An animistic God um, is, a, is a deity that has both evil and good in his nature. And so that's why all of the, you know, all the, this, the system of that religion then is that there's always these things that they do to appease, the, to try and bring out the good and try and appease the evil and so forth. We don't serve a God with both evil and good in his nature. But we do serve a God who is sovereign, and in his sovereignty has allowed evil to exist for a time. And that's important. It's for a time. This is evil, evil will ultimately be defeated. And while he allows it to exist, he regularly uses it for his own glorious purposes in his sovereignty. And there are times when we get so consumed with what's happening in front of us that we should just step back like David and say, maybe God has allowed this to happen for his own purposes and his own glory, and how about I just let him take over the story and see what he does with it. Now, it preaches easy, but it lives really difficult. You know this. Like it's easy to sit here on a Sunday morning and say, oh yeah, God's in control, and man, I can trust him with the details of my life, and even the painful ones, and even the, the, the stuff that hurt. When, when that person hurt me, I can trust God to do something with that, and, and we leave here, and man, it's, that, that, was a, that was a good word you know, on a Sunday morning. And It's difficult to live it out. And sometimes it requires a lot of wrestling. And coming back and saying, God, I have made a decision. I will trust you. And in 10 minutes when I'm mad again, I'm going to make the decision again. God, I trust you. You are sovereign. The Lord has told him to. What if God's up to something here? Secondly, David says in verse 12, he says, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. What's David saying? He's saying, my God is watching. David is able to respond the way he does because he, he believes that there is a sovereign God and he's watching and he's paying attention. And if you read the Psalms over and over, you find David in the Psalms saying to God, Lord, look at what they are doing. And David's appeal is to God to be the judge. And David is not asking for injustice to rule the day. In fact, if you, you can't read the Psalms and conclude that David likes injustice. He hates injustice. Our God hates injustice. But God alone holds the authority and the right to be a perfect judge. And by perfect, I mean that he is able to see all of the nuances, the details, the motivations, the things that are behind our situation. He's able to see 
the wounds in the person who is wounding us that we can't see sometimes. You know, there's a phrase that people use quite a bit. It says, hurt people hurt others. And I don't quite agree with it. I'd modify it slightly to say hurting people hurt others. Because it's very possible, in fact, I believe it's a claim of the gospel, is that we can find healing from the hurts. And that just because we were hurt does not mean that we will go around hurting other people. And that healing happens as we draw close to God and we experience Him healing that hurt. But David's cry often is for God to watch and to look. And David is saying, God, I believe that you are the only one who is able to sort through the hurts and the person that's hurting me that are unresolved. You're able to sort through what you want to do with this story in my life. You're able to determine who's right and who's wrong. And God's even able to show us where we're wrong, which is actually a really important part of conflict and healing, is to have the humility to say, God, show me where I'm wrong. And you see all of that out of this simple statement of David to say, it may be that the Lord will look upon the wrong. Now, when David says, it may be, he's not saying, I'm, not, I'm still a little uncertain. David's actions prove that David is not questioning whether God is looking. If David was uncertain about whether God was watching his situation, I think he'd have responded to Shimei, Simei, Shimei I'm sorry, completely different. But because David is conscious that as this story is being played out, as your story is being played out, as my story is being played out, that there is a sovereign, almighty, all-knowing, wise God who is watching this thing unfold and he's watching the details. And you and I can take incredible comfort in that truth, in the reality that my God is watching. My God is watching. Thirdly, also in verse 12, David says, the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David believes in a God who is able to redeem the situation. Deuteronomy chapter 28 as part of the Mosaic law that is given, there's like 14 verses of blessing with following the law. And then there's like 50-some verses of curses that come with disobedience. And God made it very clear that there, are, there is a moral, righteous standard and that he is a holy God. He made it clear in Genesis chapter 3 in the original sin that disobedience and rebellion to God 
will bring curses into our lives. We'll bring a curse. And you say, well, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I'd rather not believe that part of the Bible. I'd take it up with God. Um, it's, it's just there. And it makes us uncomfortable because it raises this question then, what are we to do about that cursing? Where is a God who could take the painful curses of life, the things that are the result of my disobedience or somebody else's disobedience, my sin or someone else's sin, and could turn them to good? Is that possible? David's response in that moment is predicated on his conviction and his belief that the Lord would repay with good for Shimei's cursing. Is it possible that God could take all of the difficult, negative, painful things that come into our lives as a result of the curse and could turn them and could redeem them for his own good? And I will tell you, based on the truth of his word, it's not only possible, it's been done. As David is saying, it may be, it may be that the Lord will repay. And we can, with truth and conviction, say it has been. In, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, and there's, it'd be worth going and reading this for a larger picture of what's happening. Paul is writing the Galatians, and he's talking about that if you, if you choose to come under the law, because that's the struggle of the Galatian church, is that there's people who are saying, well, it's Jesus and. Like, you need to serve Jesus, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you need to be circumcised, or and you need to do this, and you need to do that. And Paul is writing the Galatian church, and he's like, no. He says, he says the law comes with curses, and he's right. He's right, and that's not, he's not saying that that makes the law a bad thing necessarily. He's saying the law comes with curses. And he's like, do you understand, if you're wanting to go back into that, that you are also going to receive or to accept all the curses, Deuteronomy 28, I just referred to it. He says, is that what you want? And he, and he, and he just builds up, to, and he gets to Galatians chapter 3, he just says that the, that the law comes with curses, and you get to this point, he says, but Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Christ, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That is incredible good news. Because all of us were born into a world with a curse on us. That's the Genesis 3 curse that comes with the presence of sin in our lives. And all the brokenness and the difficulty and the sin that we wrestle with on a daily basis, it exists because of that curse. And the law comes and God makes it very clear that he is holy. And that there are consequences, there are curses for disobedience. 
But then Christ comes and it says he became the curse for us that he, as a fully human, fully God, he had to be fully human so that he could fully receive the curse that we deserve. He had to be fully God so that he could be a perfect sacrifice. And so he comes fully human, fully God, and he takes our curse on him and he hangs on the cross and he dies and he puts the curse to death for you and I. And our hope is not that God will one day break the curse. Our hope is that God has broken the curse, that he has redeemed our lives, that he is the God that gives our lives value and purpose and meaning. And that if you and I give our lives to Jesus Christ and we trust him for the forgiveness of our sins, that he takes the curse that we, that we deserve and he takes it upon himself and he gives us instead blessing and he does good to us. He offers us peace and forgiveness and a hope for a future. And he offers us all of the promises of the gospel if we will trust him. That is redemption. That's the good news of the gospel. And David's comment to Abishai in that moment is actually a glimpse of the gospel ahead when he says, it may be that the Lord will look on the cursing today and will do good to me and will bless me. And David is not just talking about himself, he's talking about all of us, that God would look on the curse that we were born under and that he would die for us and that he would redeem us and he would give our lives meaning and purpose and hope for a future and that one day you and I will be free from the very presence of sin and the curse altogether and that we will know him in perfection and that we will experience for once and for all this glorious freedom where we will no longer experience effects of the curse. You remember the curse in Genesis chapter 3. He said, by the sweat of your brow, you're going you're to make your living, Adam. In pain, you will bear children, Eve. And, and he's, he recognized that life is going to be difficult and that it's going to happen that way. But thank Jesus, the curse has been broken. We are not waiting for God to let us know if he's going to do anything about the curse. Our faith is in a God who has done something about the curse. He's not ambivalent. He's not apathetic to the situations of our lives. And the stuff that happens right now in our lives, like David, we can ground our response on the truth of the gospel, that we were under a curse, but we are free. We are, not we will be. We are free and redeemed through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can do to add to what Jesus did on Calvary. There's nothing you can do to take it away. It stands complete and finished and whole, and it redeems our lives. If you want to know, how do I live a life that counts for something? How do I live a life that when I reach the end of my life, that my life will have counted and have made a difference? I can't tell you anywhere else to go except to the cross and to Jesus because he is the great redeemer. And we are not born into this world as good 
people who just go a little astray once in a while. We're born into this world under a curse. And the glorious good news is that he has redeemed us. He has given our life purpose and meaning. And I know that's like a sort of a deep theological truth. I want to put up a few deeper study questions here to, to close with. But I also want you to understand this is very, very practical. Like this, is, this gets into the stuff that's going on in your week right now. Like the stuff that you wonder, is God even watching? Go back to this story. David says, yes, God is watching. I know he's watching. Can I trust him? Yes, you can trust him. Could God take what's happening right now and could he turn it to, for good? Absolutely, he can. I promise you he can. The stories, um, and, and I want to be very cautious, the story is certainly not about me, but it's very deeply personal. Um, I, I can point to a season in my own life where, where I turn back to this story repeatedly in a season of, of a lot of um, misunderstandings and, and personal attacks. And, and when I got to this passage this week, um, verse 12 was already underlined. And, and I had a, a date beside it, and it was right during that season. Season when I was regularly asking God, God, what are, what's going on? Um, I had just resigned at a church as a pastor. A lot of things that were being said to me and about me. Um, one real kind guy said, this proves you were never called to be a pastor. I mean, nice stuff. And, um, and I remember coming back to this story and saying, and, and I underline verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing. And um, this week as I was in this passage, I was just, had to stop repeatedly and say, God, you have done that. Um, like what I see every Sunday in front of me is a good. And I just see the hand of God in it. And I am so blessed and and i share that simply to tell you i i i know this stuff can be difficult i know it's hard to understand like how is this going to apply to me personally how do i take the the misunderstandings the painful stuff that i'm going through right now and trust god and I don't know what God's going to do with your story. But I can tell you, as a satisfied customer, um, as a person who's put his own faith in God, that God can write a better story than you can. And he can redeem even the most messed up, confusing, difficult situations. The redemption to the David Absalom story is going to play itself out over the next several chapters. But it really plays itself out through the rest of Scripture. Because the story is kind of about David and Absalom, but it's really about us. It's about a Savior who comes and addresses the cursing, addresses the curse, and gives instead blessing as our Savior. And I hope that you are able to find that spark of faith and say, God, you know what's going on in my life. I don't get it, 
I wouldn't write the story this way, but I'll trust you with it. And I'll trust you to do something good with it. Amber, go ahead and come on up. I want to bring this, I want to close. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, um, we're all living those stories. And I pray, God, that you would help each person here this morning. Um, most of us can think of, of conversations we've had, maybe even recently, that were hurtful. People said and did things that shouldn't have happened in our mind. God, give us the faith, every one of us, to, to take those situations, to lay them in your hand, and say, Lord, I trust you with it. Um, I trust you to show me what you need to show me. Teach me the lessons. Uh, Lord, I trust you to write the story better than I could. I trust you to redeem it. And even if it looks like it's getting worse, God, I trust you to, to redeem it and use this story for your glory. Now, there isn't a person in this room that you don't want to um, use for your glory, to write their story, to, to redeem them. And God, thank you that we can trust you, be, not because of what you will do, and glory, it's going to be glorious what you will do, but we can trust you because of what you have already done. You have forgiven us. You've given us a hope, and you've given us peace, and you've given us meaning and purpose as your sons and daughters. God, it's good to be your children, and we love you. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing this last song.